Episode 16, I'm Casey Lee Mitchum. And I'm Burton Cody. And today we're doing something a little bit different. Uh, we are not covering one movie. No, we're no. covering, well, potentially up to 20. Yeah. Um, it, Casey and I, since doing the show, we decided to do a list covering the best action films made since 2000. Kind of like, you know, best of the 10 years. I mean... We would have done this three years ago had the show existed, but sadly the opportunity was not available. So we're not covering nine years, we're covering technically 14 years. Pretty much, yeah. If you include the double O. Yes. And it will be included. Mm Mm-hmm. Somehow, one way or another. So these are our operational detachment alphas. These are the films he and I decided upon that are, you know... And, and that are the best. And not only that, this is a subjective list. So oh, Very much so. Uh, there are quite a few movies that I, I really like that I agonized over including here. And I didn't because I thought, well, you know, I might not be as enthusiastic about them as I was when they first came out. Because, you know, the year 2000, 2001, 2002, like, the, I was a very different person. <laughs> I was still yeah, me a too, kid. Man. Yeah. So, I mean, those were my high school days. So, uh, it's... Yeah, it's very different. I'm a very different guy than I was then. Although that, that doesn't mean that movies from that era didn't slip in. Because some, yeah. some I still feel the same way about. Yeah, and just because your favorite action movie might not be on our lists, either of them, does not mean that we don't like it. Mm-hmm. Oh, like I, for one, I really enjoy uh, the last three Fast and the Furious movies, four, five, and six. But I couldn't pick one that was representative and above all the rest. So that it didn't wind up on my list this time. Yeah, so... There may be movies that you might think are glaring glaring omissions, Mm -hmm. but, you know, that's just the way it is. That's the nature of lists. That is the nature. You got to be ruthless. That's right. Well, let's let's ruthlessly jump in to number 10s then. Number 10. Um, I suppose I'll go first. And at the 10 spot, I have a little movie called 13 Assassins from Takashi Miyuki, uh, 2010, I want to say. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a remake from a 1963 film, and Takashi Miike, it's a it's a historical action movie, because it is based on a few real people in feudal Japan, and these group of uh, mercenaries band together to take down a ruthless, tyrannical lord who's the nephew of the shogun, fearing that this nephew will be in too high a position of power for anyone to do a thing, anything about him later in life. So they've got to kill him while they have the chance. But they're up against an enormous force. Uh, Miike helped craft some dazzlingly bloody action scenes in this movie. And of course oh, it yeah. be a big That's... appeal to the show. Um, there hasn't been samurai action like this in a very long time. Sometimes a few will slip in, but it's 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 a genre that's definitely not as huge as it used to be. Yeah, I mean, this is it, the movie ends with like a good forty-five minute battle sequence inside of a, a town that's been closed off by the thirteen assassins, and it's pretty spectacular, and how they go about taking uh, on you know a couple hundred bad guys. 
It's pretty and, spectacular. And honestly, before 13 Assassins, I didn't know Mike had that in him. Um, he, he dabbled in action before, but there's some Mike-isms in the picture. Mm-hmm. Like, his preoccupation with, like, sadistic torture that does happen in this movie. And his type of violence, it's really unsettling. And it's like he straddles a line between unsettling and cartoony. And he does hit that here frequently. But it's not as it's not as sadistic as a movie like uh, the infamous Ishii the Killer or uh, Fudo, the new generation. Those movies were a bit of more younger and wilder uh, Miike-san. They require a much more iron-cast stomach. Yes. <laughs> Those are movies that, while I do enjoy them, but they're kind of guilty pleasures, and, and, and they're hard to recommend to people who probably would aren't too familiar with that. So. But that's all I have to say about now for, about now for uh, Thirteen Assassins. I think that's a definitely uh, that's definitely a worthy list entry. Yeah. Uh, well, that's interesting that you started with a uh, with a historical epic, um, yeah. because I did too. Uh, I pick my number ten is John Woo's Red Cliff. Uh, Red Cliff is the is a huge sprawling epic. Uh, it's based on China's most famous novel. Uh, the Romance of the Three Kingdoms, which mm-hmm. several things are based on. Uh, if you've played a Dynasty Warriors game, for example, all of the characters in that are Romance of the Three Kingdoms characters. Uh, they yeah. they pop up everywhere, and it's in martial arts movies and and beyond uh, anime as well. So, but I think this was this was like a really audacious attempt on Wu's part to craft this. Uh, well, it's essentially. A historical epic, but it's also been mythologized heavily in yeah, these novels. Yeah, it's like the Iliad. Exactly. They, 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 most of these people did exist, but their their roles and their abilities have been romanticized to mythic levels. And uh, and I think that's definitely what Wu delivers here. He Now, it's number 10 on my list because it is technically a five-hour movie. I mean, it's it's in, in uh, China, it was split into two parts. In America, it was released over here, and I think they cut like two to three hours out of it. Um, so I recommend the international cut if you want to see it, because that's the only way I've seen it. I don't know what got omitted. Um, and a lot of you know, and a lot of the movie is like characters planning and plotting and strategizing and appreciating art and uh, helping a helping a uh, mother horse give birth and hunting for tigers and there's a lo- there's a lot of stuff going on you know but but uh, the the action we do get is is pretty grand uh, for example you have the famous spearman Guan Yu in a battle where he. Uh, stabs dozens of men with their own spears. He just keeps jerking spears out of their hands and stabbing them with their own weaponry over and over. Or uh, or another character that just runs headlong into spears and just breaks them all with his arms. Like are, there, has... are there plenty of wooisms in the movie? <laughs> the one wooism that really cracked me up was that the bridge between the first and second films is that one of the one of the characters releases a dove. Oh, the doves. They, they release the dove and it flies over his army and it land it lands on the other side of the opposing army and the second movie also starts with this shot. So <laughs> the dove, you know, there's there's he had to work that one dove in there somehow. Uh, and there's also a, quite a few uh, characters flashing back from time to time on things that we've already seen, which is another wooism, but uh, it's not so bad here. It is I also really wanted to compliment. There's a there's a really 
famous sequence in the uh, historical and uh, mythical account of it, which is that uh, the strategist Zuge Liang, who's played by Takeshi Kaneshiro, uh, he in the in the myth he's sort of given almost wizardly powers, and that he can he can make the wind shift during a naval battle, mm. so that um, when they when they set all these ships to blaze, they set them all on fire. That the that the wind will blow the fire in the direction of the opposing naval fleet, and, uh, and of course, the, the, this movie delineates more of the the historical accuracy of it, which is that Liang was just a, way ahead of his time in being able to predict weather patterns. All right. So he so he knew the right time and place, and they 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 do that really well. And there's a and the sequence of all the ships bursting into flames is a really really good one, um, but it's my number ten spot because like I said, it's technically one hour of action out of five hours of movie. So your mileage about being able to sit through that to get to these really big sequences may vary. But I enjoyed it. Well, I mean, you know what, uh, Ben Hur is about a four hour picture, and somewhere in the middle of that movie is one of the most spectacular action scenes of all time. Definitely. And that's a movie you just couldn't ignore, and I'm, I'm speaking about The Chariot Race, in case you don't know. Mm-hmm. But anyways, moving on to the nine position, uh, number nine, I have Scott Pilgrim vs. The World, also from 2010, from uh, director Edgar Wright. Um, this movie's on here because, at first I wasn't going to put it on here, because I was like, oh, it's, it's kind of a romantic comedy. I was like, well, no, like the movie's all about these different fights, the main character Scott Pilgrim has to go through to to win a girl, and to win her over, and it's kind of like uh, an externalized, you know, growth of this character that you and you see everything through his eyes. So everything's very exaggerated with uh, one of the some of the best uses of CG, and that is to make sort of everything like comic book. And I'm not just speaking about the mechanics of a comic book. I'm speaking about just the raw energy you experience reading a really action-oriented comic book like Scott Pilgrim. And Scott has to battle individual foes throughout the movie, or for the most part. And each one he has to go about it through a different way. And the first one is through like brute force. And then he meets a, a foe that's way, more, it's way tougher than him, so he has to trick him. Uh, there's one where he has to use like his band. To battle like another band with the really odd but clever um, scene with like uh, dragons attacking each other, and uh, the movie I do take points off for the end of the movie. the The final action sequence is kind of just a bunch of guys flipping towards Michael Sarah, who plays Scott Pilgrim, and he just bats them out of the air with a, a beam sword. Um, but other than that, the fight choreography is spectacular because uh, Brad Allen, who fought Jackie Chan in the movie Gorgeous, and he's gone on to do, like he said he has, like he's wanted to, uh, just fight choreography for different Hollywood pictures. It, Including the Hellboy movies. The Hell, yeah, he's worked with Guillermo del Toro a few times now, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think he did like a Wu-Tang Clan video, but of, of course. Uh, <laughs> but Scott Pilgrim, uh, Edgar Wright really understands... Hong Kong style action and that mm-hmm. is for it for Hong Kong style action it's unique in that every single shot is its own action and so that you kind of pack the frame with the things going on with it and then when the camera angle shifts or you get you get a cut then that's the new action 
Whereas, you know, in Western action movies, they like getting coverage, you know, coverage of the same action through different shots. And then it's all kind of spliced together to, to create. It just creates a different kind of feeling. And Edgar Wright and Brad Allen made Michael Sarah and maybe prob- uh, probably through the use of some good stuntmen, make him look like a pretty confident kung fu brawler. Which is a really hard task. Very hard task. He's not an intimid- intimidating figure at all, but they did it. And I, I think the movie's a blast, so... And I mean, another... Good. A big part of uh, that franchise's appeal is the copious amounts of video game references, uh, particularly to fighting games. And I think that... Uh, I think Edgar Wright did an admirable job of really integrating all of those elements seamlessly. Or coins falling from the air yeah. when someone's defeated, or so on and so forth. Yeah, and I love all the uh, guest characters, like um, Chris Evans plays one of the evil exes, Scott S. Vite, and he's hilarious. And Brandon Routh, who played Superman a few years ago, he's pretty funny as a super-powered vegan. Uh, it's all just hyper-reality. It's a load of fun. So absolutely has to be this was a This was a real breakout decade for Edgar Wright. Oh, yeah. I don't... I, in fact, I don't think he's made a movie I've disliked. No. I've, I, I'm not the biggest fan of Hot Fuzz, but I do... I think it's a good movie. Uh, see, I'm I'm totally on the other end of that. I yeah. love Hot Fuzz. Yeah. It, it's pretty good. I think it's his lesser movie, but we'll get to that another day. And mm-hmm. we're we're both looking forward to Ant Man next year. Oh yeah, or the year Definitely. after. Yeah, Definitely. Definitely. So, uh, it's my turn, I guess. Yeah, yeah. All right. My number nine uh, is Mission Impossible: Ghost Protocol. I did not think I was gonna ever have a Mission Impossible. <laughs> On, on, on one of my top ten lists. And, and you know, the other movies have been good enough, mm-hmm. but I really enjoyed this one. Uh, it's directed by Brad Bird, who is, you know, also... But had previously just done animated movies. I mean, The uh, the Incredibles is one of my favorite animated movies. I think it's the... That's as good a Fantastic Four movie as we're ever going to get. <laughs> yeah, sadly. But uh, I think he does a spectacular job with this movie. It's... There's some real, there's some really incredible chase sequences. Uh, I don't think I don't think the uh, Tom Cruise character has ever looked more vulnerable than he does in this movie. Even when he's succeeding, he's usually prat falling or l- at least looking like he's taking some damage. Um, and there's a truly spectacular sequence where he's climbing an extremely tall building oh, from yeah, the that, outside. That, that whole scene, the stuff going in and outside the building is wonderful. So it's 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 incredibly well paced. It's uh, definitely a new height for the franchise, and I really hope that we see Brad Bird make another action movie someday. Me too. He, he's got a wonderful knack for it. And you can see that in uh, The Incredibles. Yeah. Also, uh, I also want to say the uh, the final action sequence inside of like um, a mechanized garage full of like <laughs> 100 cars or something is... It's like it's close to an American like Jackie Chan's type sequence where they use the environment. They integrate it so well into what's going on. They do, yeah. It was that's a really stellar sequence, and yeah, it's exactly for the reason you said. It's the incorporation of the environment, and I think that's a I think that's a really a level where Brad Bird's experience as an animator comes in, just considering all of those components and not just leaving the environment as a static thing. Yeah, I, I do. Uh, last thing about. Mission Possible. I want to mention is that the the great like sense of teamwork in the movie. It's not all about just Tom Cruise. He has this really great team of memorable characters working around him. 
and it's mm-hmm. so fun to watch them work together and accomplish the mission. So even even uh the I really love that gadget sequence with uh Simon Pegg essentially playing Q. Yeah. Uh, but he, they do that sequence where they create a hologram projector in a hallway to distract a guard, <laughs> and just the staging of it works gloriously. It was funny and thrilling at the same time. Like Brad Bird makes it so effortless. Yeah, and that's why we love him. Yeah. So uh, mov- moving on. Yeah. Uh, moving on, I, I have my first straight up. Well, I guess thirteen assassins for beat it, but. Straight up, like, kind of neck-breaking martial arts movie, and that's the spectacular Ong Bak. Uh, it was the star-making vehicle for Tony Jaw. It was a shot in the arm of adrenaline for the genre. It emphasizes a... It's a Thai film, and the movie is just chock-full of, like, Buddhism. Like, you get a sense of, like, the Thai boxing culture, too, and Tony Jaw is just spectacular in the movie, the way he just zips around pretty much no use of wires in the movie in fact i think on the poster it says no stunt double no wires um and i believe it like because there's uh, on the dvd there's tra- uh, training sequences where he just runs across the tops of people's stuntmen's heads like he does in the movie it's, it's spectacular he can just leap that high it's a movie that kind of harkens back to uh movies like dragon lord with jackie chan there was just this reckless abandon this incorporation of the really complex acrobatics and really hard-hitting martial arts. The, the, the fighting isn't as intricate as it would be in, like, I think, a, a Laokar long picture, but it's more brutal. Like, there's bones breaking, necks cracking, and, like, and when he, like, smacks a guy in the head with his elbow, it just hurts. It looks incredibly painful. It looks incredible every time. Yeah, every time. Um, and the oh man, uh, the, my favorite sequence is where he's going through like uh, an underground fighting tournament, and he takes on all all foes. And the first guy's like this huge burly Australian dude. The way he just overpowers him is spectacular. So Tony Jaw's a little guy. He's like five five. There's a little guy with the funny hat and the quick footwork. Oh, I, I love it where he just takes this fancy like uh st- kicking style guy apart he sort of out he outwits him with his own tricks and he's just so effortless in his spinning moves and his flip moves and you know i could kind of just list you know other tony jaw movies mm-hmm. in this list but ong bak i think is the best one it's ong bak was it was the movie that made us all believe that tony jaw was going to be the next big thing yeah he uh, he's taken a long, longer breaks in between his movies than a guy like Jackie Chan, who'd made like in his prime, he was making like three movies a year. He's just, and he doesn't have quite have the star power of Jackie or Sammo or Jet Li. He's also reportedly kind of a diva and has had some uh, mental health issues that have been really interrupting his filmmaking. Mm-hmm. But here, he's he's at a rare form. Yeah, and the, that's it's a kind of martial arts film you're not going to see very often and sadly if ever again so yeah absolutely see that one and the the protector almost as good <laughs> almost the same plot in both movies, but <laughs> yeah something stolen from tony jaw of sentimental value <laughs> don't take his buddha head or his elephant yeah. or he's going to elbow you in the face yes repeat but but the plot doesn't matter here because it's all about choreography and this movie has choreography mm mm-hmm. mhm so, uh, Casey. 
Yeah, my number eight uh, is actually two movies. Two movies. Uh, but they're related. It is the Undisputed series. Uh, Undisputed, Specifically, Undisputed 2 and 3. Uh, Undisputed 1 is a completely unrelated film that was a uh, vehicle for Ving Rhames and Wesley Snipes. Yeah, the Walter whereas, Hill movie. Yeah, whereas Undisputed 2 and 3 came much later and were direct-to-video and really are a showcase of the profound talent of stuntman Scott Adkins, who plays uh, the most complete fighter in the world, Yuri Boyka. Uh <laughs> And he is really, really good in this. Um, I mean, number two also, he's actually the villain in the second movie uh, because Michael Jai White is the hero. But in the third movie, Michael Jai White is no longer present and has left you know, the, uh, the franchise. So now it's Boyka's turn to be the good guy. But this, these movies are about essentially illegal prison fights that are arranged like mixed martial arts tournaments uh, with the winners getting favors and pretty much ruling the roost. Mm-hmm. Um and really, this is the inheritor of a lot of the kinds of movies we talk about from you know from much earlier on. Like this is this is like Van Damme <laughs> fair, just with really great uh, action choreography. Uh, it's it's definitely the inheritor of the of the uh, blood sport will. Yeah, it's it's an even better blood sport. I mean, the fight choreography is so much better, and Atkins is really tremendous. He can really go. I mean, this man, like, he, he flips and throws, you know, spinning kicks like it's nothing. Yeah. And I mean, and Adkins has been in the shadows for a long time. I mean, he's a Hollywood stuntman. I know for a fact he's been in the, you know, most of the Wolverine <laughs> stunts. Uh. He's, he's been the go-to guy. He's British, right? Yeah. Yeah, and he's, but he plays a Russian here, and mm-hmm. he does he does so pretty, pretty convincingly. I, I, I think... I think since the 2000s, there's been a lot of attempts to integrate the mixed martial arts craze into film, and I think that uh, with Undisputed 2 and 3, we, we get the closest to accurately portraying that style of fighting. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's definitely, you know, he, he's, he's, got, he's got some Wai Thai kickboxing in there, he's got some uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu in his repertoire, there's a lot of, there's a lot of bone-breaking going on. Oh yeah, a lot of like uh, sambo, joint locks, the whole smear. It's wonderful. Yeah. But he's, he, I think, I, I really like Adkins having his chance to be in the spotlight. I know for a fact he's currently filming um, Undisputed 4 because he really enjoys playing the Boyka character and because he has a great, uh, he has a great relationship with the director, uh, Isaac Florentine, who before Undisputed 2 and 3 was primarily a director of American Power Rangers episodes. Yeah, uh, Florentine... He's got a long career of choreographing action. He's got a great sense of geography and placement and uh, clarity. Clarity, definitely. If I, if I have one complaint, uh, some of the fights are slightly cheapened by the, by the fact that they overlay them with really bad rap songs. Like I, I'm a fan of hip-hop, but the, the, the hip-hop they choose for the soundtrack is, is pretty weak, especially during moments that should feel more dramatic. Yeah, and, and that's kind of like the case of uh, the production company going, okay, we got to like have something to sell this movie with, and we got to kind of cheapen it up here, because this is direct-to-video. Yeah, but, it, but it's, it's great direct-to-video. Oh, so yeah. uh, I, I definitely recommend. You, you don't need to see one. Mm-mm. Just skip the two and three. You're good to go. Totally. And I guess this brings us to our number seven position. And I'm picking up one of, if not the, 
a most graphically violent film I've ever seen, more so than even Saving Private Ryan, and it's a sequel, and and it's uh, Rambo, or, or as the fans call it, Rambo Four. It is the fourth Rambo picture, or uh, John Rambo. John, sometimes. yeah, John Rambo was the original title for it. Um, Stallone hadn't played the character in about twenty years. Um, he's what sixty years old when he had made this movie. And I didn't think much of it until I saw like a red band promo reel, and oh, what a what a reel that was! Holy cow! He he, he just unloads with like a fifty caliber machine gun, and he turns some guys into paint with it. And all all of this while a preacher is giving like his testament. <laughs> yeah, and then you see the movie, and you go, okay, that was pretty violent. And the movie's way more violent than you would realize. Um, this is Rambo as the angel of death. He's just popping out of the shadows. He's chopping off heads with a machete. He's disemboweling bad guys. He's ripping throats out with his bare hand. And you see it all. It's just unbelievably violent. And it has this rousing effect, though. And I'm almost ashamed to say, like, you know, the violence in it just catapulted this movie for me. And Stallone's just intense performance he gives uh, I <laughs> I remember walking out of the theater where I went to the midnight show with a few buddies and I was just ready to fight somebody or something I was just all <laughs> jacked up and I, it gets your adrenaline going it really does like few movies can like Rambo and it, I, I have it a little lower on my list because I, I feel like it's all violence you know but I really do like this movie, and if you can stomach it, I absolutely recommend it. All right, then. Yeah. Well, my number seven uh, is actually – we really didn't plan it this way. We, I, don't know, I don't really know what's on your list. I don't know the batting order of your list. But uh, it's kind of funny that we're both talking about revived franchises, you know, as <laughs> number 10 was historical stuff. Um, but I really enjoyed uh, Skyfall, the James Bond film. Skyfall. Uh, it, it contended for me with Casino Royale, mm-hmm. but I felt like Casino Royale suffered from a weak last 20, 25 minutes. Uh, I was really riveted by everything before it, but once we hit that 20-minute marker and the false ending, I, I kinda, it kind of lost me a little bit. It has about three whereas, false endings, I think. It, it does, and it's one too many. Yeah. Uh, whereas I don't have that problem with Skyfall. Uh, Skyfall benefits from a, from a really great uh, villain performance, by Javier Bardem, although uh, Mads Mikkelsen and Casino Royale is also really good. Mm-hmm. But they, those were the two movies that bridged the really bad Quantum of Solace, which was regrettably uh, uh, cut short. Regrettably cut short by uh, the writer strike happening right around the time of filming. Uh, I think Craig even admitted like he and the director were making that movie up as they went along. Hey, and more power to them, yeah. I guess. But I, you know, I think Skyfall really helps cement Daniel Craig as a worthy Bond. Totally. Not, not that his, you know, opening in Casino Royale didn't, but uh, there's, and there's some really good action sequences in this one, though. Uh, Casino Royale was more of a movie to establish Bond as a character. Skyfall is a movie to establish Bond as a immoral murderer. He's pretty cold-blooded in this one. He's to- he's completely cold blooded, and uh, all this cold bloodedness greatly benefits from the amazing cinematography of Roger Deakins. Hmm. Uh, 
that the the sequence of him choking out a guy against a Shanghai skyline of neon uh, billboards is just beautiful to look at. It really, yeah, I agree, yeah. And I, I really love uh, the last thirty or forty minutes where the movie essentially becomes Home Alone for adults. I, I got a uh, Straw Dogs vibe from it. I, I think the director Sam Mendes even said the Peck and Paw Straw Dogs is one of his favorite movies. So I, I think that was a reference to it in a way. This is also the movie too, where uh, where Bond kind of steps more into the Bond we recognize. I mean, he's he's finally met um, you know a much younger, more modernized Q. Uh, we see M and you know we see the M and Money Penny office with the familiar hat rack at the end. These are all nice little tributes, and it really it really just makes me excited to see where the Bond franchise is going to go. Especially because I've, you know, the rumor has it Sam Mendes is going to be back at the helm for at least one more. All right. So bring it on. I, I agree. Uh, I like Skyfall too. Um, my number six film is the only superhero movie on my list, and that's Spider Man 2 from Sam Raimi mm-hmm. uh, from 2004. Uh, I just think this is, if not one of, if not the best superhero picture. Uh, Spider-Man is the most cinematic, I think, of all superheroes. I think you can just... The camera works well with him and his like kind of crazy acrobatics he can do and his costume looks great on screen. But this one does a brilliant job of showing like how tough it is to be a superhero. And it takes like a very old-time you know, supervillain, Doc Ock, and makes him a really worthy adversary. There's that wonderful... Like horror movie s scene that's it's very Sam Raimi where his tentacles come to life and murder an entire uh, ORs room worth of doctors and surgeons uh, nurses and everything it's yes. pretty spectacular and horrible and this movie just wonderfully like juxtaposes um this a terrific fight scene on top of a subway where and, and that Doc Ock eventually uh, tears off the brakes. And Spider-Man has to stop the train somehow. It's really spectacular, and but that scene is juxtaposed with a wonderful sense of just wonderful scene of uh, just pathos, where everyone in, on the train uh, comes together to save Spider-Man's life, and it's very touching. And I almost cried when I saw one in the theater. I always called that the Spider Christ sequence. Yeah, he gets crucified by his own webs in the speeding subway. I, I didn't get quite get religious overtones with it. I just got like just the sense of people coming together to help him out, and that meant a lot. And they give him his mask back, and it's a wonderfully touching scene. Um, all the side characters are wonderful too. Oh yeah, uh, I I I I still more than I think any other side character, I still really miss J.K. Simmons as J. Jonah Jameson I, in the new films. I don't think any actor is going to top his performance. <laughs> um, and uh, is it Alfred Molina? He yes. plays Doc Ock. He's just great. Uh, and Willow. Raimi, Raimi really like I, I, I still do, I'm not the hugest fan of Tobey Maguire or Kirsten Dunst, but I feel like every other character was so well cast in Raimi's movies. I, I like Tobey Maguire in that he doesn't have like a very strong voice. He doesn't look like much of a physical specimen, but that he's a nerd. He's Spider Man, you know. I, mm-hmm. I like that about him. He plays that really well, and the humor is on point in this movie. Like, there's some hilarious montages, like, where Spider-Man temporarily decides to be a regular guy again. It's set against, like, uh, raindrops keep falling on my head. <laughs> Love that sequence. Um, this movie doesn't have a ton of action scenes, but they're all really memorable. And they, well, uh, 
and they they uh, what what uh no sorry no they and they just keep escalating in such a great way i mean the the highlight of the movie is though that that great battle that leads on to the subway though mm-hmm. um i also think that This movie, especially, it really feels like you can tell how indebted a lot of the modern superhero film is owed to how well Raimi captured the vibe of the comics. Mm -hmm. At least in the first two movies. In the first Um, two, yeah. Like I mean, you, I mean, he even does you know direct shots from some of the comics, the uh, the infamous Spider-Man No More sequence, where I think it's Amazing Spider-Man number fifty, where. Peter leaves his Spider-Man costume hanging out of a trash can, and he replicates that shot exactly. Mm-hmm. And uh, he has in the first movie. I remember uh, he has Green Goblin die in similar fashion. Yeah, and, and uh, speaking of which, and Willem, Willem Dafoe. Dafoe. He, Oof. <laughs> he pops up as a phantom Green Goblin here and there in the second movie, and he's always just a great menacing presence. There will never be an, a better Norman Osborn. Nope. He was he was born to play Norman Osborn. I think. That yeah. yeah, that's all I have to say about Spider-Man Two. I just yeah, it's a really good movie. Yeah, and I, I and I want to say you know I I kind of miss uh, the lightheartedness of a Spider-Man and a Spider-Man Two because uh, there's so much needlessly grim uh, superheroism in both comics and in movies about superheroes. I, yeah, I appreciate that the movie is bright and colorful and lighthearted to to a most of the degree, especially compared to like the Nolan Batman movies. Which hey, I, I really enjoy the first two. Don't ask me about the third one if you're <laughs> if you're a huge fan, because I have a lot of bad things to say. But uh yeah, moving on. Moving on. <laughs> um all right. Mine is the is uh, you mentioned Ongbok. This is my first Thai movie on the list. Uh, and it is Chocolate. Oh man, I love from chocolate. From two thousand eight. Uh Chocolate is uh, probably a little le- uh I know, not even a little. It's much lesser known than the films of Tony Jaa, but it's by the same director, mm-hmm. uh, Prachyal Pinkal. I think, I hope I said that right. Uh-huh. Uh, and it stars uh, Yanin Vismistanananda <laughs> playing a character called Zin. Um, and it's a female character. Mm-hmm. And she is really incredible in this movie. Uh, I really enjoy the plot, too, because it's about an autistic young woman a severely autistic young woman who learns martial arts by just watching movies. Uh, she watches them and just emulates all the movements until she is just as good as Bruce Lee and as Tony Jaa at doing uh, martial arts. And there's so many spectacular set pieces here, uh, including a really just I don't, a bone-breaking one that takes place on a tenement building balconies where they're, they're, just, they're hopping from balcony to balcony and she's just kneeing people in the face as they're jumping toward her. Uh, she, I, she really shines in this movie and I, I hope to see more from her. Mm-hmm. She's pretty spectacular. And especially where she fights all like uh, the butchers. Mm-hmm. The guys who... Oh, I, I love the sequence too, where the one of the butchers tries to throw a meat cleaver at her, yeah. and she doesn't even dodge. It just bounces off the ch- fence and hits him in the hits him in his own chest. Yeah. And we just stick with him for a few seconds as he realizes what he's done. Right. It's hilarious. There's a lot of great hum- humor here too. Uh, coming from the same director, I actually think Chocolate was a better just movie as a whole. 
Mm-hmm. You, I think Ong Bak is better just because of... I enjoy Ong Bak more because of the Tony Jaw stunts and his, his abilities. But Chocolate is definitely great. And, you know, and it's just... It's really great to see a really tough... Uh, female martial artists, you know, get the opportunity to beat up scores of people, and not necessarily need a lot of help along the way. Yeah, well, it, it you know, it harken back, harkens back to the uh, girls with guns days, of the late '80s, early '90s in Hong Kong, with actresses like Michelle Yeoh, and Moon Lee, and uh, Michiko Nishiwaki. And uh, Miss Yanin is. Well, she was, you know, first discovered by the same director, mm-hmm. and now, you know, I, she really has an opportunity to strut her stuff, and I, I really hope this is a movie that more people go out and see. Absolutely, it's uh, widely available on on the disc, so it's not like an underground movie necessarily. No, and it's it's well worth your while. It's got humor, it's got action, and it's got both in spades. Mm-hmm. Check it out. Yeah, uh, moving along to the top five now. Are we already there? Yeah. Jeez. Um, right along. It feels like you know. Uh, I have uh, Dread. This is my other comic book movie. One of two. Spoiler alert. Dread. One of three. Scott Pilgrim. Oh, three. Oh, gosh. Thank you. No, I, I, not the. I don't really know too much about Scott's uh, source material, but Dread. A redo. I, I can't even say reboot. It's just another Judge Dread film, closer to the vein of the original character. As opposed to the Stallone movie from 95. That we can hardly call a Judge Dredd film other than that he was called Dredd and wore the costume. And Dredd, like, he is a fascist police state cop. And he never takes off his helmet. But Which is already a huge improvement over yeah. <laughs> Stallone, who never wore the helmet. <laughs> no, I think he wears it in the first five minutes and then never again. He never takes it off here, though. I think... Uh, Carl? I don't think he does in the comics either. Carl Urban that plays him? It's it's Carl Urban. Okay, yeah, Carl Urban plays him. He's great. He does like this kind of Clint Eastwood sort of voice. And this movie's very much a Dirty Harry, John Carpenter kind of film. It has a very similar story to the one, to a movie that came out the same year, even though Dread was written and produced before the, that other movie. So it's kind of a weird coincidence in a way. Dread was also in 3D, and believe it or not, the 3D looked great. It was shot in 3D. Um, it makes wonderful use of slow motion. It incorporates slow motion into the story because there is a narcotic on the street called slow-mo, and you actually see the effects it has on uh, the users. And it makes them perceive time much, much slower than it really is. And there's a couple of shootouts done in that way, and the main villain, played by uh, Leanna Headley, I think, or Lena Headley, she's on oh, okay. uh, Game, Game, of Thrones. Game of Thrones, yeah. She, yeah, she plays uh, Cersei Lannister. Okay. Really good. She plays the main villain in the movie called Mama, and she's kind of uh, a refreshing in character in that she's a former prostitute who's made her way up the ranks by killing every all of her opponents uh, and becoming a, a drug kingpin inside of a high-rise building. You know, this is deep into the future where most of America is concentrated in this giant megalopolis that stretches from, like, D.C. to New York. It's, you know, it's just massive. And she's the one who controls all the slow-mo within the megalopolis. Or Mega City One, that's what it's called, right? So she's, she's the real kingpin here. She is the real kingpin, yeah. 
she's pretty ruthless and sadistic, and she likes to give people slow-mo and have them drop off a roof so they can watch <laughs> themselves die. Uh, Dredd, the movie I also really like because it's a movie that's a day in the life of Judge Dredd. That's kind of the premise, really. And it's him educating a rookie cop uh, from the comics. And she has telekinetic abilities caused by, you know, you know, a couple of centuries or decades of mutations that have gone on through radiation poisoning in the country. And she doesn't wear a helmet. And you kind of see the movie through her eyes more so than Dredd's. Well, Dredd is a Dredd's kind of a difficult character to get behind. Yeah, he doesn't he, seem like a cinematic character at all because he, he never takes off his helmet and he's a fascist. And, and yeah, and even in the uh, even in the comics, I mean, ninety percent of Dredd's Dredd's dialogue is just screaming at someone who's disobeyed the law and then blowing them away. <laughs> it's yeah, uh, he's just a distilled, dirty Harry, in, in, you know. Dirty Harry stripped down to his very essentials. And he's, 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 he's the punisher on the other side of the law. Yeah. Um, the movie has some terrific just action scenes, and they keep building, and it shows Dredd's no-nonsense approach to it. Like, and he's very uh, methodical about the things he does. He, he doesn't try to be spectacular. And even when he does like hand-to-hand combat, he's very efficient. He does like very quick strikes to people like it's it's very realistic in that way i mean points off that there's a lot of cg blood in the movie i'm not a fan of that it looks too video gamey um but even like some of the best action movies like rambo had a lot of cg blood in it and including a lot of you know practical effects blood too um Maybe it was really difficult to uh, to do the slow mo effects and the blood. It is. Uh, at the same time. I'm sure to capture uh, liquids at a high rate, it's much more difficult than just you know telling the effects guys uh, just animate that for me. So I mean, I could be wrong, but I, I would assume it's easier to do that, less of a mess, you know. And you can get the the kind of splatter you want. You have just more can you just have total control over that. Uh, Fantastic. Yeah, Dread, absolutely. Check it out. All right, then. Um, all right, let's. So, my number five uh, is going in a completely different direction. Um, Peter Jackson had a really good decade, too. Yeah. Uh, he's, I mean, obviously, he, he went from a low budget director of exploitative, graphically violent horror films to the premier fantasy director of our time uh, which is a which is no small feat uh and he's he's definitely i would say probably also the best guy at making swashbuckling films uh anymore i mean definitely uh and it was kind of difficult to pick just one i mean there's for example there's fantastic there's a fantastic sequence in the new hobbit movie uh, where they incorporate a, a chase using barrels that goes for about 15 or 20 minutes, and it's it's a it's a beautiful thing to behold. Hmm. Uh, but there's a whole fr- there's a whole franchise of Tolkien adaptations to cover here, and I decided to go with Lord of the Rings: The Two Towers. All right. Uh, on the strength of the Helm's Deep sequence alone, uh, the Battle of Helm's Deep, of course, being the place where humanity finally confronts the Orc Horde. And it is just so epically shot. I, I, I hate the overuse of epic as a Me too. as a descriptor, but this one is truly epic. Well, they're epic movies. 
Yes, yeah. they 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 yeah, they deserve to be called it. And this is the this is the epic sequence. Uh, I think it's the I think it's something that he never. I think it's kind of the climactic peak of the whole franchise. You know, you you're never going to get higher than that. The Helm's Deep sequence. Um, if you watch uh, Sam Raimi's Army of Darkness, a lot of the buildup to those movies was it's almost shot for shot the same, like to the final battles of both movies. And I think Peter Jackson is a big Evil Dead fan. I, I given the movies Jackson did before, like Dead Alive, yeah. I would say that's a very safe assumption. So I, I think he was referencing um, it's Army a of loving homage. A loving homage, yeah. Yeah, but uh, it's. I mean, there's there's quite a bit of CGI here, but man, that's. That was it. Was pretty revolutionary for its time to have so many characters on screen at once and so much going on. And yeah, the music is really rousing too. Oh, yeah. by Howard yeah. Shore. <sighs> yeah, it's perfect. Yeah, and the the, I mean, and, and eventually we have we have giant tree people showing up and wreaking havoc and all kinds of stuff. Oh uh, yeah, just and the orcs are scary, man. Oh yeah, and the 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 fact that it's at night with rain really heightens the tension and uh it seems like that would be a cliched effect but i think jackson uses it to his advantage very well without being cheesy and also that that movie just has some of the best acting in the entire mm-hmm. series too uh like you know all of the all of the speeches from king theoden before before the uh, the battle ramps up and everything it just it sells everything so well you know the stakes and you're just completely invested for the entirety of that battle yeah uh jackson builds that movie he kind of the battle of helms deep is what that whole movie builds up towards mm-hmm. it's like mad uh, the road warrior like that whole movie built up to the final car chase and he does that with the two towers and my understanding too is that uh, the Battle of Helm's Deep was one of the things that Jackson really pitched to get the job. Like he had somebody make him a miniature of what Helm's Deep would look like, and that was one of the things that he brought to his pitch sessions mm-hmm. to really show, if, like, this is how big a you know a scale I plan. And I think he I think he delivers every last bit of it. Um, I can't take anything away from the Two Towers. It is one of the perfect fantasy movies. I agree. I'm not even a big fantasy guy, and I really dig the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And in particular, uh, the two towers. So did, it's the Empire Strikes Back of Lord of the Rings. Yeah, it it really is actually. <laughs> yeah, moving along though, uh, I picked also a very popular movie that's going to go on my number four spot, and it's probably from the most fanboyed out director of the last ten years, and that's Christopher Nolan's Inception. I really enjoyed Inception. I, I think Christopher Nolan. He's made a Batman movie, and then right after he's allowed to do like a more personal project, or more you know a more original one, and it's always better than his Batman movie. So hopefully that holds true for Interstellar. I mean, this is my opinion on it, though. Yeah, to take nothing away from Batman Begins or Dark Knight. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, those movies are you know in their own ways and in certain ways are landmarks. Um, I think Inception is his best, and I think he finally got a clear view how to do action really well with this movie because he doesn't use second units he shoots everything himself that's pretty impressive yeah that i I don't know how he does it i don't know he finds the time i guess he just doesn't sleep for four months you just you know i mean he he did direct insomnia yeah in personal experience yeah inception's kind of like it's almost like an internet meme now it's kind of a joke or whatever people joke about like dream within a dream within a dream and all that 
But he, I think that was the first time most people had heard the word Inception. I, I think so too. And so now there's Inception, Inception, or whatever this like. Oh, Corgi on a Corgi, Corgiception. I don't know. Just speaking in internet humor, but there's that brilliant scene with uh, zero gravity, and Nolan said he was inspired by 2001. How that movie just mesmerized him as a youth. The zero gravity f- sequences, really, with Joseph Gordon-Levitt floating around. And it's just so spectacular. I, I love, like, the sets. I love, you know, it's like these guys in really, uh, really expensive, like, Versace suits fighting. It looks really cool. And the movie, the way it, it can cut between, like, a car falling, which initiates the zero gravityness uh, inside of Joseph Gordon-Levitt. But for some reason, it doesn't carry over to the dream inside of Joseph Gordon-Levitt's dream. I mean, it's a heist picture, and it's also not just an action movie. It's a movie. It's, it's a movie about making movies too. And it's and it's also a psychological labyrinth. Yeah, um, it's very like I, I'm always amazed when people tell me like the movie was very complicated. I I think Christopher Nolan made it very simple. He like he simplified that as well as you could. Oh, no, I, I don't think it's difficult to understand at all. No, I mean, there's much it's, more it, nebulous movies about dreams. It's a, it's, it, I mean, it's essentially just a heist movie with different layers. Yeah, like, the editing is so good with, uh, like I was saying, with the car and what's going on inside and inside that you, I, you never get lost, you know? And the movie sends, spends a good, like, 45 minutes explaining the rules of their dream worlds and... It's the way, like, it's all set up is just so wonderful, and the payoff is great. And I'm not a big Hans Zimmer score fan. I, I think his music's always just kind of like intensifier kind of music. It's not very dynamic, but... His his Joker theme sounds like a vacuum cleaner being left on. Yeah, yeah, I don't like his Batman music, uh, or his Superman music, but here in Inception, it's used... Or it, maybe he just did better score, a better score for Inception, but it's really... I, th- I thought his Superman theme was okay. I wasn't too warm about much of anything with that movie, but it's scoring. <laughs> well, ni- neither was I, but I'll, I'll yeah. give it that one song. So, um, and there's even like a little reference to uh, Nolan's favorite uh, James Bond movie uh, on Her Majesty's Secret Service with the final <laughs> like snow sequence, which is pretty cool. It's- Although that that felt like such a... I don't know, it felt kind of underwhelming to get to the snow sequence after it all that. It did because the action scene before it was so good that and you just, nothing measures I, up after it, sad. And you just thought, like, we're, we're like, I don't know, how many dreams deep are we into dreams by then? Like, you, so you, you think we're going to go somewhere truly unusual and we're just on a snowy mountain yeah. with, like, ski patrol guys. It's true. I, I still like it. I mean, I like this movie. I think it's I'm, incredibly yeah, not, entertaining, so... I'm not taking it away from you or anything. It just It's a spectacular it's probably the most big budget movie I have on here other than like Spider Man two. Um but it just works so well. Uh and it's such a cool idea. I mean allegedly there's the Scrooge mm-hmm. McDuck comic that has like a heist inside of a yes. dream. So And that there is by Carl Barks, and there's also uh, Satoshi Cohen's Paprika. Oh yeah, Paprika did come out a few years before this too, and, and it had, 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 had a, but that one went into much more surreal territory with its dreams. Yeah, like this movie is very straightforward. Inception, that is, 
and it just it just works wonderfully. And so absolutely see it if you haven't. Yeah, it's a it's a special effects feast. Yeah. I can I can go with that. I really dig it. All right. Uh my number four is is even more straight. It's much much more straightforward than the already straightforward Inception. Yeah. Uh, it is Pacific Rim. Pacific Rim. I am a huge fan of giant robot cartoons. Uh, if you ask me what my favorite comic I'm reading this year is, it's Gundam: The Origin. Uh, if you, like I. I seek out any kind of giant robot thing I can watch. I'm a big fan of, you know, Mazinger Z and Giant Robo and all these things that I definitely know Del Toro watched either growing up or in like in coming up with the ideas for this. And it it's definitely the best live action robot film we've had to date and maybe we'll ever have. I know there's a sequel planned. I'll wait and see on that, but I think this is a true love letter to the mecha genre hmm. and and i i felt it completely uh i, I really enjoyed looking at the co- the different colorful kaiju and although they could even do to be even more colorful and i'm hoping that's something that uh, happens in the next film uh i really enjoyed looking at the different jaeger units because they they i don't know they just had these big bulky feel you know things like the super robot characters from the old uh 60s and 70s uh manga and cartoons and like sequences like the battle of hong kong in particular are just really glorious uh flesh on steel brawls between monster and man i mean all you all you really needed to give me is the shot of uh Gypsy Danger, the main Jaeger, dragging a freighter ship behind it, while Tom Morello is jamming out on the guitar in the background, uh, <laughs> and I'm I'm good to go, man. It's that's all I really need out of this movie, and I I still think it does a great job of you know incorporating a multicultural cast uh, of of really making a nice uh, gesture to show you know a, a group of heroes where uh, the world is saved by the world and not just by America or Japan. Uh, it's it's so it was nice to see such an international flavor to the casting. Uh, I, the the fights work for me. Uh, the scale, which was allegedly inspired by the uh, the Goya painting, the Colossus, uh, really works very well for me. I I had no complaints coming out of it. I think my fandom for giant robots and kaiju was sated by what I saw, and I I'm hungry for more. Um, my favorite thing was where uh, the Gypsy Danger takes like those truck containers and uses them like rolled quarters in its fists yes to punch a kaiju i didn't really get like a big variety of kaiju in the movie they all kind of look the same to me yeah so that's i agree with that and I, I hope that they give more variety in the in the sequels totally um guillermo del toro and he says he wants to do more and it, it made so much money in asia that it didn't make a lot of money here, but it made a ton of money in Asia, which makes sense. Just like Avatar. Uh, just like Avatar, and so they're they're definitely interested in doing more now. Yep. Well, there you go. Their Asian market, you know. Evangelion. Yeah, the Pacific Rim has like tons of little nods to all sorts of like giant robot series, not just oh, Gundam, yeah. not just Ava. Yeah, there's it's pretty much everything you can think of. Yeah, like. It's, it's, thrown in the pot there 
So uh, I, and it was one of the few movies uh, in the last year that I saw twice in a theater. I saw it in the IMAX the second time, and I hey, it's one of the few movies that where I can also say that my IMAX premium was worth it. Oh, you heard it here, folks. I guess moving on to the top three, man. My third spot, it's the probably the most low key movie out of all of these, and it but it's one of the ones that had the biggest impact on me, and it maybe would have been number one, change of temperament, but I had to just say it. You know, and that's Drive, a movie we've already mentioned on the show. And, man, Drive uh, <laughs> Drive is not the most action-packed movie ever. In fact, it's, it's quite slow until, like, the last, you know, half hour. But the movie opens up with a really smashing car chase that takes place just inside. Or you see it from the point of view of just inside the car. And... I mean, it's about Ryan Gosling, who's a professional stuntman, and he moonlights as a getaway driver in uh, in Los Angeles. And he's kind of a weird guy. and He's not, like, a guy you'd want to hang out with. Like, he, he could be... He's a little crazy. And this is what we talked about. The director, Nick Reffin, is kind of his own weird version of an action hero. And it's like the action hero is a monster. And I mentioned before that this movie is full of tons of references to uh, John Carpenter's Halloween with music cues and certain images with like uh, the hairless Michael Myers mask. Uh, and it's got some, pr- the action scenes are very, they're, they're not a lot of them and they don't last very long, but man, did they just, they had like the biggest emotional investment in me. I was just so into it. And Gosling, you know, like a slasher, works with this sort of twisted proficiency. Yeah. Um, he doesn't use a gun. He specifically says he does not use a gun. That That is a hallmark of a slasher monster. And uh, I guess his weapon of choice was the uh, the hammer. Oh, yeah, he does use a gun in one scene, but it was actually out of circumstance. Yeah. I will say that, yeah. Um, but there's a scene where he takes out a bad guy and he goes way over the top and just collapses his head. That I, I that's such an incredible moment. Um, just because I mean it in in a typical action movie, you know, we're supposed to cheer as the hero knocks out a guy to save the girl, but we watch we watch sort of that moral event horizon where he takes you know one two three kicks too many and just brutalizes a man, and then we suddenly can't see him as being as heroic yeah as a as, as a character you know we typically would and it has like uh, al brooks playing against type he's oh, usually he's like so the good. funny guy but he's an absolutely nasty villain in this movie disgusting guy creep um can't wait i mean like he's just so different from ryan gossing that makes such a great uh, pair of opponents yeah i who knew albert brooks had that in him no i, I guess this is the kind of role he'd wanted to do for a long time Allegedly, he pinned uh, he pinned Refn against a wall and threatened him in character to get the part during his audition. I believe it. Well, you know, he was Hank Scorpio. <laughs> okay. One of the most brutal supervillains of our time, Casey. <laughs> but yeah, Drive. One of my favorite movies, if not my favorite from the last, you know, ten years or so. Absolutely love this film. The first, uh, the first ten minutes is among some one of the most suspenseful sequences in recent memory. Yeah, and that's how you start the movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just, just him, just showing him on a typical uh, job where he is transporting criminals and, and evading the police, 
and just with like minimal synth soundtrack and it it's perfect. I'm always and I'm always impressed every time I see this movie with the efficiency of it all. Like there's a scene where he walks into uh, a strip club. And any all these other directors, you just know if they're like, "Oh, strip club." They get they'd have all these gratuitous shots of like the dancing girls, there'd be music, people drinking stuff and it'd go on and we, for like and, a few minutes. And we, and it wouldn't even be in the background as our hero walks by. It would be like they have to cut to these things specifically. Yeah. It, but here it's just Ryan Gosling walks in and it's 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 also done to keep the emotions consistent, the emotional content consistent. And the movie just knocks it out of the park. And oh man, I love it. Yeah, he takes the hammer to that one guy in the strip club. And oh man, it's thrilling. It's a thrilling movie. Totally yeah. must see it. it. And if I had to compare it to another movie other than Halloween, it's kind of like the Shane formula. Hmm. It's kind of the 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 loner who comes in to help out, comes in to help out uh, like a family in need, and that's exactly what he does against a group of bad guys. Definitely. I mean, he he is the modern man with no name. Yeah. And there's been talk of doing a sequel, and I would absolutely, absolutely love to see a sequel to this, like the Man with No Name trilogy. I know the author who wrote the book is writing more. Yeah. Uh, characters, you know, movies featuring featuring Driver, who is unnamed in the movie. Yeah, he is unnamed. Yeah. But moving along. Yeah. Well, I'm actually going to keep the uh, the driving thing going because I, I want to talk about uh, Speed Racer. Speed Racer, <laughs> totally Which different. Is such- yeah, yeah. Well, and it's such a strange movie to throw in a list that has no other entries by the Wachowski brothers. But I feel like this is the most overlooked movie uh, that they did, and I, it, I think it's honestly one of the most fun, entertaining movies of the last fourteen years. I, mm-hmm. I think it has such a genuine heart to it. Uh, what I love is that it, it, it is a movie that manages to be thrilling, but exists in this complete child logic world. Uh, it, you know, Speed Racer exists in a world where no one is stronger than your dad, no one is cooler than your older brother, no one's more annoying than your younger brother, and nobody makes better pancakes than your mom. <laughs> I mean, and, and it it just does it so earnestly and sincerely, but at the same time, it delivers these really fun racing sequences. You know, and it's it's pure. It, I mean, the cars and everything are pure CGI. The world is this candy-colored Hot Wheels track come alive. And there's just such a, a brilliant and uh, exaggerated use of color. Uh, at at one point, oh, I love, I love at one point that he goes so fast that he blurs beyond. He breaks the color barrier, like everything just dissolves. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's just really brilliant. It's really fun. It's such a pure adaptation of like the. The anime believe in yourself and the power of love vibe. <laughs> you know, I I think it's I think it's real. It was it was really crapped on, and it still is by quite a few people. Um, and I just, I don't think that's fair. No, I, I don't think they got like the movie's point. And this was like all the emotions you felt as a kid watching your favorite Saturday morning cartoons. It's there in that movie. Mm-hmm. I, and there's I mean like the desert race is so. Wacky racers. I mean, all these different gimmicked drivers that are that are like you know pra- practically throwing bombs with fuses at one another, or uh, you know, of, or the sequence of uh, cartoonish ninjas trying to sneak around and being uh, beaten up by uh, Speed's. Greco uh, Speed's Greco Roman wrestling champ dad. 
more like a nonja. Also, also, uh, spoiler. Perfect use of Racer X. Mm-hmm. I didn't know where they were going with it. In, in the mid movie, they kind of do this reveal where you, where like, as the audience, if you know Speed Racer, you know to expect the one plot point that's in every Speed Racer <laughs> episode because Racer X could never appear in the cartoon without going secretly. I'm Speed's brother, Rex Racer. Like he had to, he had to remind us that after every commercial break. Because they were always worried the audience of children would not know what was going on, or it might be their first episode. Uh, but in the movie, he takes his mask off. Oh, and it, it's not him. It's not him. And then, of course, later on, we we do realize it is him, and he's had this dramatic plastic surgery and all. This. It's, but it works so well. Mm-hmm. And it's so splendid, and I I really just enjoy the positive message of you know self belief and. You know, and doing things that you're doing things that you love or that you feel like you're good at because you're driven to do them. Uh, so I, I can take, I can diminish this movie not at all. Uh, I think it's the perfect cartoon adaptation. I totally, totally agree. It's a great movie, great all ages entertainment, and such a counterweight to drive. <laughs> yes, in so many ways. Um, yeah, moving along. Uh, number two. I have uh, the Riotous Youth classic Battle Royale from 2000. All right. It's the late, great Kinja Fukasaku's last movie. He came out of retirement to direct it. Uh, and what a way to go out. What a way to go. It's one of his best films. Uh, how many directors get to say that? You know, typically you hear like, oh, the old age, like it's the old man director's curse. He can't make anything good. Like his last three or four movies are crap or whatever. Not the case with Fukasaku. Um, this movie is great. It's it's a it's kind of a horror movie in that it's like a, a nightmarish uh, Twilight Zone scenario where children are dumped off. Uh, they're all members of the same uh, like high school class. They're all dumped off on an island, and they're told to kill each other until there's one left. And if they don't comply, uh, there's explosive collars that will kill them to make sure they do comply. Uh, there's also and it's all for entertainment. It's all for, yeah, it's all for entertainment. Like allegedly, you know, Hunger Games may have gotten its initial premise from it. I don't know. The author claims she never heard of it. I mean, but hey, but this is clearly getting its influence from you know uh, the Running Man, the Running Man, so. or the Lottery. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot. Yeah, there, there's a lot. Like, um, what is original anymore? I mean, but Battle Royale, uh, Takeshi Kitano is kind of the main bad guy, and he's like a former teacher. And he's the one who's gathered the students to kill each other. Um, there's the great villain called Kake, I mean, um, Kuriyama. And he's the sadistic guy who's he's the one who joined the competition for fun. As I say later in the movie, uh, the movie is it's really suspenseful at times, too. And it's got tons of black humor. All of the characters that you follow around, like the two main leads... Uh, Kitano, Kuriyama, and uh, kind of the, the veteran who's there to kind of throw off the competition. <laughs> like, you all really get to know these characters and really care about each one kind of moving along. And there's some there's some fairly horrific sequences here, too. Uh, I remember just this this one shot of... Um, what is her name that played Gogo Yubari? Oh, uh, Chiaki Kuriyama. Yeah, she. there's this one... She, I think she's supposed to be like the the um the easy girl you know and 
and but she uses her sexuality as a weapon and there's that one shot of like it's just a really quick shot of where she is in the world at that moment but like you see two nude boys laying on the ground oh no no that, that wasn't Chiaki. that was the other girl oh it was the other girl okay yeah. uh what was her name in the movie mitsuko mitsuko yeah. okay yeah it's been it's been a while since i've seen it yeah but yeah just that that shot of her uh, standing over the, the two nude bodies, presumably because she's convinced them she's going to have a threesome with them or something, and has just murdered them and taken advantage. Yeah, it's nothing but just the camera pulling back to reveal the gruesome sight, and you know exactly the story that played out. Yeah, and it's just so it's it's really it's interesting to sort of see the um, like it's it's Lord of the Flies with weaponry. Yeah, or, or um, even. Um... A bit of trivia: the Gogo Bari, you know, we just we just kind of mixed up a second. The girl that played her was in Kill Bill, but the girl that played Mitsuko, Tarantino was he's such a big fan of uh, Battle Royale, he wanted her to be in Kill Bill also, and he had even written a character for her named Yuki, who was going to be Gogo's sister. And for one reason or another, the actress couldn't do Kill Bill, so he completely wrote out her character in her chapter. I think the chapter was like Yuki's Revenge or something. Gotcha. Yeah, so bit of trivia. Um, yeah, Battle Royale, <laughs> and the way it moves in from each like kill scenario or each action sequence is pretty breathless. I think the way they just squeeze it all in, and the movie is just constantly full of like just really dark humor, and mm-hmm. it and along with the dark humor, there's a bit of sweetness to it all with uh, Noriko and uh, Shuya the way they kind of bond throughout the whole thing and Noriko has a bit of a crush on uh, Shoya and the way that uh, I just love watching it all play out yeah and uh, great use of music too um I could I could really go on about this film but we do have to move on well I I, I wanted to say uh beat Takeshi's uh t- the teacher character you mentioned I I think he's hysterical in this movie mm-hmm. uh but but he's he's hysterical in the way that beat Takeshi is where it's just so subtle like just watching him do calisthenic exercises while kids are being, you know, shot to death, or eating the cookies, just, yeah, or or firing a squirt gun yeah. at someone in a climactic moment. It's just it, it, he's he's perfection. Uh, there is that one great scene where all the girls start accusing each other inside of a lighthouse, and the way that violently explodes after their dialogue is so great, and it's a very it's the most Tarantino-ish scene in the movie, and Tarantino told. Uh, Fukusaku. Oh, that was my favorite part. He's like, oh, well, it was inspired by Reservoir Dogs. Ha! Huh. So, uh, yeah, Tarantino even said that it's his favorite movie of the last, uh, like of the modern era. Yeah, there you go. I mean, it's one of my favorite movies. Period. You know, I love it. It's a classic. Totally. Uh, okay, I'm in an unfortunate position now. Uh, I, not knowing your list, put uh, my number two as John Rambo. Rambo. Uh, I. I guess I can say, to me, this wasn't a cynical cash grab. Like it, it. I think that Stallone did a tremendous job of giving uh, both the Rocky and the Rambo characters exits, mm-hmm. uh, and like, within that within that sort of same four or five year period, to the point where we we would never need, and I hope we don't even have to, to see those characters ever again. Because like the the moment they each end on is the right place to leave them. Um, yeah, I, I will second your thoughts, and I, I was kind of quiet during your Rambo yeah. section for this reason. Um, but I'll second your thoughts that it is just a, it is, if you're there for cinema violence, it, this is a 
glorious. And I, I hate to I hate to uh you know sound like I am a I am a violence monger because it really I only enjoy cinematic violence. I I really abhor violence in real life. As do but, I. But th- this movie is a glorious uh, just bloodbath and beyond. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> if there ever were a time to use that phrase, it's it's here. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and Stallone, man, he looks like he's in the best shape of his life in this movie. Well, like, he was caught in an air an airport uh, with vials of human growth hormone. That explains yeah. it. That explains it because he is a he is a uh, aged polar bear of a man in this movie. Uh, you believe that he can rip out a guy's throat with his bare hands, and there's that that whole over the top sequence at the very end of just him with that jeep mounted machine gun blowing away hundreds of people and a boat with a flamethrower showing up i mean it, that's the closest we'll ever get to a metal slug movie yeah i, I totally agree with you and they do i'm glad they do have uh at least the sequence of rambo uh being stealthy mm-hmm. you know that was the big influence for you know metal gear solid yeah, and uh, and also Rambo not wanting to fight. Like he really didn't want to fight this time. He always kind of says he doesn't want to fight. Yeah. Like he he, he didn't want to get involved initially, and then these you know these Christian missionaries drag him into this situation in Burma, which is a war zone. Burma is a war zone. I I also I I laughed hysterically when they when they showed him. Um, flashing back to the previous wars and it was just clips of him crying to Colonel Troutman from older films. Does it have him like all upset over the the Vietnamese girl from Rambo 2? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I I am a huge fan of the Rambo franchise. It might be one of my favorite action series. Mm-hmm. Uh, and 4, I think, is the best of them all. Uh, I, I think First Blood is still the best one, but I really do like Rambo 4. Uh, it it is it is far better than it ever had any right to be. It was shocking, uh, actually. It was shocking. And it's 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 kind of even more shocking knowing that Stallone hasn't not done anything near as good since. No. The Expendables movies, you know, are nowhere near as good as Rambo before. I to- yeah, I totally agree. Well, yeah. Let's go to number one. Number one. Uh, no pressure here. No pressure. Um. I'm starting to think that you probably have the same number one, and that's The Raid. Yep. From uh, it's the last Raid. year, Gareth Evans, uh, filmed in uh, Indonesia. Mm-hmm. Completely out of left field, this movie. And it's... What a movie what, this is. It, it's like, you know, it's like the best things from Hard Boiled and Project A kind of crammed into... Assault on Precinct 13. Assault on Precinct 13 and Die Hard just crammed into one crazy movie. Uh, (laughs) I don't know. And it was the movie I referenced when I was speaking of Dread, that Dread uh, has a very similar uh, plot setup. But The Raid is just the action spectacle that Dread just... There's no way Dread was going to be the action spectacle this movie was. I mean, this is just kind of a a once-in-a-while movie. This was the movie that Gareth Evans used to announce Indonesian action and Salat martial arts to the world. And I could not imagine a better movie to do this with. Oh, yeah. Uh, um, there's some gunplay at the beginning when there's a group, there's a SWAT group 
and sent in to infiltrate a drug lord's high rise in Jakarta. And the entire and the entire movie takes place within this high rise. Yeah. But but this isn't just any high rise. I mean, this is this is a uh, a den of villainy and scum. This is a this is several 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 floors of mm-hmm. machete wielding drug dealers oh, yeah. and junkies and you know criminal elements that all live under the roof of this one ruthless gangster because he's the only person that will take them in. Yeah, I mean, I think like the first thing we see is like him with uh, a hammer. Mm-hmm. Hammers are a big thing on this list. Yes, they are. And, uh, you know, if I could have gotten away with calling it an action movie, uh, we might have seen Old Boy strictly for its hammer sequence. Scott Pilgrim But I didn't feel comfortable. I didn't feel comfortable, but it has that has that really great uh, side-scrolling hammer sequence in Old Boy. I, but, anyway. I guess we could mention that Korea, <clears throat> South Korea, has brought in, like, this decade of ex- extremely dark and violent action movies. Mm-hmm. And I, I might talk a bit more about that in our horror countdown as well. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the 2000s beyond and beyond have been just an explosion of really talented Korean directors and films. And uh, I, I don't know, I, we might dedicate whole episodes to those in the future. Yeah, so. well, I mean, we're not getting the, like, all the Korean, cla- or every movie from Korea is shipped over here. I think they're shipping out the most extreme ones to oh, Americans. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I mean, it's export culture, but, yeah. uh, but you know, like just in the same way that, like, we also saw, you know, an explosion of really talented Mexican directors, you know, following Guillermo del Toro and uh, Alfonso Cuaron and a bunch of other guys. Korea's had a similar surge, but we digress. Mm-hmm. Uh, back to the gloriousness of the raid, and yeah, the the ruthless gangster who starts off with a hammer and uh, and and execution style shootings and runs out of ammo. <laughs> so, he shoots, so he has the guy, he has the uh, bound man hold his uh, unloaded gun on his shoulder while he goes to get ammo or a hammer and chooses the hammer. Yeah, there's all these, I mean, just so many just, the movie's wall-to-wall action. Wall-to-wall I, I, action. I'll, I'll tell you one of my favorite, favorite things about this movie, uh, beyond the just extremely great choreography. And it's it's that I think this might be paced out better than any action movie I may have ever seen. Um, and just that the way that the movie does start with ammunition, but by the end, by by the middle of the movie, our heroes have run out of ammo. There are no other options. So then we start seeing the knife play and this and the and the uh, the fists and feet and elbows and knees come in. But I, I really love that attention to detail and that attention to reality because in other movies of this type, conceivably the heroes could have bullets that last the entire film. Mm-hmm. Like we 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 understand the hopelessness of their situation. Um. Yeah. It, it's like Die Hard. And, and you know in the structure and in that you know the main character he's getting progressively more more tired and beat up as the movie goes on and uh there's a sequel being made yes that's going to take place right after it's like well they won't give him a chance to sleep apparently <laughs> no i i think i think uh well we'll talk about him in a minute um i really wanted to highlight two particular actors here uh, which is Iko Uweis, who mm-hmm. plays the main character, and Yian Ruhian, who plays uh, Mad Dog. And what is it with movies like this that have a guy named Mad Dog? <laughs> well, I, this is one of the few times where I completely understand where the Mad Dog moniker comes from. Yeah. Uh, he Yian is this very little man. I mean, he even by even by the standards of you know of of a Asian film, he seems much shorter than his opponents. But he is 
just this incredible ball of fury. It's diminutive death. Yeah, I, in fact, I, I really love his first battle with the significantly taller SWAT team member. Yeah, like, he really wanted the, the good guy to win in that one, too. Like, And they have an honorable fight, too. Yeah. Like, Mad because, Dog's like, okay, no guns. Uh, yeah, I don't believe in guns. You can't, you can't enjoy the killing when you have guns. Yeah, you know? they have a pretty absolutely nasty fight. And yeah, it's like Ong Bak, but in that uh, all of the, every strike landed just looks so painful. It does. And and the, uh, the loca- it's, location plays a big part here, too, because, I mean, it's, we understand, like, they, they can't escape. Um, and it's all enclosed hallways and small apartment rooms. Like, these are not wide open spaces. And I think that closed-in space forces the action to always be up close. Yeah, and I, I really love that it's very minimalist, like, the, the set. Like, <laughs> it's mostly just concrete and steel everywhere. Like, these are, these are poor tenement buildings. Yeah. And so, you know, it just forces, I don't know, it really makes you feel like these guys have entered into hell. Yes. SWAT team. And uh, I love Tactical Grandpa. He's the <laughs> oldest member of the SWAT team, and he looks like he just came off the golf course. And he just kind of tackles people. Yeah, he just, gra- he just put on, like, a bulletproof vest and grabbed a rifle, and he's out there with him. He's yeah, he's hitting people over the head with like chairs. Yeah, um, that's his. I, I think there's like yeah, Eco like goes in and out of the hall like he's like fight some guys in the hall, then he finds a room to hide out in, goes back out, fights some more guys with who and they're they're and they're all like swinging machetes around like it ain't no thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's just insane. Um, what oh gosh, and then there's like the great scene inside of like the cocaine cutting room like mm-hmm. all the powder flying everywhere and knocking just, guys through tables breaking all yeah things. it's uh, this is the movie that if anybody visits my house and says do you want to watch a movie i make them watch the raid oh uh, yeah Ra- raid is just great uh i i need to get this on blu-ray i don't have it yet I, I, I had it i had it day one man i love this movie too much yeah the sequel's coming out next year called a uh, berendal or the raid it'll be called the raid two here yeah but over, I think the original title was just The Raid, and then mm-hmm. over in the States they added the Redemption. Redemption. Because there's some other movie called The Raid over here. Oh, yeah, well, whatever. Um, I think so, this one added in, like, an extra cool, like, electronic score, a really, like, brain-thumping score I really enjoyed. By uh, It's by Mike Shinoda of Linkin Park. Yeah, great, great score. I love the, the theme song, Knives Out, how appropriate <laughs> Really good. Yeah. Uh, it it really. I was kind of worried when I heard, oh, they're giving the score to Lincoln Park guy, but he he did a really great job of. I mean, it's 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 electronica. There's no like, there's not any singing or anything. It's just Mike Shinoda DJing and and uh, using his music to thematically fit the film. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's an action masterpiece. Uh, it is. It is every in every way. In every way. Um, I might enjoy as a movie. Maybe like Battle Royale or Drive a little more, but I think just as a pure action film, it's really tough to beat the raid. It's I mean, it's really tough for movies from other decades to beat the raid. Yeah. It, I I'm just I am endlessly impressed by what a revelation this movie is, and I am I could not be more pumped for the sequel. I I know that the sequel uh 
was the movie they initially wanted to make, but the studio told them to okay, go ahead and prove that you can make this movie that you can make a good action movie at all mm-hmm. before we talk about making this Baron doll movie, which is going to be a movie about uh, Rama played by Eko Weiss and the same character from The Raid. Uh, he is sent undercover in a prison, mm-hmm. and so it's going to have huge prison fight sequences. Yeah, if I had an issue or any issues with the movie, one is that they do use pretty good amount of CG blood in the gun sequences mm-hmm. and that a lot of the early action is like with handheld cameras and it's kind of hard to follow at times As, especially the very like first two shootouts or so it's all handheld and I think it might have been handheld the whole movie for all I know cause just fewer setups and then keep the action going because I from what I understand they shot this movie on a pretty tight and uh, quick schedule well, and, and yeah, and a tight budget as well. I mean, that explains why we do the single location thing. I mean, they even, you know, they they even explain away why they can't escape by showing two snipers on a roof. You know, like yeah, and and that their drivers have been shot to death with machine guns. I love it. People go, oh man, remember that terrible uh, Prince of Persia movie? And it cost like two hundred million dollars, and the raid was like two million dollars, if that. <laughs> and it's like a hundred thousand times better. It really is. I I really can't say enough positive things. Yeah, I I think there's a new star in uh, Eco Wise. Mm -hmm. Um, Is he going to be in the next Fast and the Furious? Nope. Tony Jaa. Okay, okay. Tony Jaa is going to be in the next uh, Fast and the Furious picture. Uh, uh, Weiss is also the action choreographer for the, the Raid movies. Okay. I know it was him and the guy that played Mad Dog, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, the guy who played Mad Dog, in spite of uh, the ending that he met in The Raid, is also going to be in The Raid 2 as a different character because they like him so much. Yeah, and, and uh, yeah, it's like what John Woo did with uh, the Better Tomorrow movies. There's a bunch of characters or actors whose characters were murdered in the first one and they play completely different people in the second one. It's, it's like a Marx Brothers movie. You're like, wait a second. <laughs> um, yeah, The Raid... Uh, yeah, Eco Weiss was in, uh, I think, Man of Tai Chi, the Keanu yes. Reeves movie from uh, earlier this year. I, d- I didn't see it. Uh, I think he's a cameo as a Salat fighter. I think Keanu just added him in retroactively because he saw the raid and he's like, oh, this movie's great. Um, as did we all. <laughs> yeah. So were there any like um, honorable mentions Like you just wanted to say the title of like movies? Mm-hmm. I feel bad for having excluded uh, Kill Bill. Yeah. I I think that uh, I think those are I think those are really good movies. I mean, the first one's obviously a samurai movie. The second one's more of a spaghetti western. Mm-hmm. Uh, I enjoyed those movies a great deal. I I don't feel like they impact me as much as they did when I first saw them in high school, but I I still really enjoyed them. Um, so they deserve to be mentioned. Uh, I also wanted to mention uh, the good, the bad, and the weird, which is that Korean western I mentioned way back in the first episode of the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, I. Uh, Lee, Lee Byung-hoon is really good as the villain in that. Um, I really enjoy the the uh, comedic comedic relief character in that as well. And it's just a it's well it's a well shot, well choreographed modern western. Uh, but uh, you know, taking obviously taking place in Korea. Um, yeah, uh, you know, I, th- I thought about movies like Bangkok Knockout, um, the first J.J. Abrams Star Trek. I think it's a blast. Uh, Open Range, a surprisingly great western from Kevin Costner, and it has Robert Duvall in it too. It's from about ten years ago or two thousand three. 
Mm-hmm. Um, Django right. Unchained, you know. Yeah. Great use of squibs in that. Yeah, that that's what sold me on that movie, or at least action, um, anyways. I, I Sin City. I think Robert Rodriguez did a really fantastic job of. Uh, adapting those Frank Miller comics. I don't think Frank Miller has ever been so good on film or will ever be again. Uh, and I just, I, I think that he did a, I don't know, it's just the digital effects on that and just the the me, the matter and the means by which he recreated so much of the feel and the, ex, the exact look of those black and white comics is mind-blowing to me, uh, even now. Yeah. So I stand by that one. I, although I, I felt like, you know, with the inclusion of uh, Speed Racer and Pacific Rim and all, a lot of those other movies, I was already kind of including a lot of that type. Yeah. Um, and I, I feel really bad for not mentioning uh, the great output Donnie Yen has had this decade. The Yeep Man Pictures, mm-hmm. uh, Killzone, also known as SPL, and uh, Flashpoint. He was just fantastic in all of those movies. They couldn't quite break my top ten. And I would have said the Grandmaster, but I have only seen the butchered American cut and not the Wong Kar Wai Hong Kong Chinese version. That, from what I hear, is like the only way to see that movie. Even though I, I did really love, I mean, loved the Grandmaster as it was, but it's like I, I can't include it if I haven't seen the right one. I also really enjoyed uh, Shaolin Soccer. Oh yeah. Uh, Stephen Chow had a Stephen Chow had a you know it's a, a pretty good output there for a little while. Uh, I think it's a really fun, funny, entertaining film, but it didn't it didn't ultimately make my list. And uh, I'm actually kind of surprised. I, I thought about this today. Uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon's great. Uh, yeah. I think that's uh, although I, I I think it's a very beautiful movie. Although I kind of resent how it more or less ushered in uh, Hong Kong's age of wire foo as the only thing. It, I mean, Warifu had been around a long time before Crouching Tiger. It's true, but I feel like after, I feel like post Crouching Tiger, you got a lot more of it. Stuff like that, like stuff like the Storm Riders or Storm Riders uh, is before that. Oh, was it okay? Yeah. No, I no, mean, no, but but but, obvi- but obviously, I mean, I also enjoyed Zhang Yimou's movies, which were Warifu, you know, like Hero and so on. Yeah. Um. Uh, what was I going to say? Crouching Tiger. Uh, it, it was a movie that would have been better had Jet Li had played the Li Mu Bai character instead of Chai Yun Fat because Chai Yun Fat is not a martial artist. No. Um, and it's very clear in the sword play sequences. Um, but I don't like the fact that that that's what uh, martial arts cinema was associated with for a very long time to other people. Like, oh, I think it's even the wire food. Even to this day, people sometimes refer to new kung fu movies as Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Yeah, the movie's 13 years old, guys. But there was, like, Volcano High, later on the Korean movie. Yeah. Uh, and speaking of Korean movies, I really enjoyed A Bittersweet Life. Yeah, A Bittersweet Life almost popped into my list, as did uh, Mel Gibson's Apocalypto. Or um, Gladiator. Gladiator was uh, a great one. Um, and I... I know what other people think, but I think Avatar as an action movie is really solid. Um, I'm not a big CG guy, so that's what kind of hurt the movie for me. And I don't really like the new James Cameron as much as the old James Cameron. I know I'm not alone in that. But that yeah, that's kind of it as far as you know uh, the top ten for me. Yeah, I, I'm I, I feel really strongly about the top ten that I chose. Same here. So, uh, how are we going to follow up this top ten? Well, 
or as if you listen closely to the lyrics of our theme song by Brittany Cannon, mm-hmm. we're not just action, we're action and horror. Horror, horror and action. And action. <laughs> so next That's week we'll be doing top ten horror films we find, you know, since 2000. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to that list. Yeah. And I'm actually having an even harder time. I'm sure you are. I'm really agonizing over some of my choices, but I'm confident that come this time next week, I will have one ready for the show. Totally. Um, But yeah, that's about all I have for this week. This is, this was an especially long episode, but uh, I think, I think the material we covered merited that. Totally. So, Hey, thanks for joining us guys. As always, I am Casey Lee Mitchum. And I'm Burton Cope. Stay bloody, my friend. For nothing, or die for something.